Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 39 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and this episode is one for the golf course architecture junkies. Our guest today has been arguably one of the most influential men in this field in modern times through his inf- involvement in founding golfclubatlas.com, a website devoted totally to discussion of golf course architecture. We'll meet Rand Morissette in just a moment. We'll chat about that and the upcoming US Open at Pinehurst, which is nearby to where he lives. But first, my co-host for the day, blogger, critic, author, etc., 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 from the US, Jeff Shackelford. Shack, you've done most of the legwork in organising Rand for this show. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. It should be fabulous. Yeah, yes, he's very, uh, very enjoyable to talk to and has a lot of uh, strong opinions and I'm uh, very curious to talk about the uh, the region where we're going to have sort of a focus here in the next few weeks. Yeah, indeed. And uh, joining me here in Australia, but from a far more desirable location than the one where I presently find myself, course architect and commentator, magazine columnist, a man who once told me on Twitter that there's not enough time in life to play bad golf courses. That's why we find Mike Clayton at Barnboogle Dunes this morning. Clates, there's at least three people envying you right now. How is that little slice of heaven there this morning? That's- Everyone thinks the weather's bad in the, in the winter here, but, but but I've never seen a well, I have seen a bad day in the winter, but it's, but it's perfect. I'm here for three days. It's it's Richard Sattler's wife's 60th birthday, the founder, so we're here for a party. At least that was an excuse to come for four days and um, pl- just play some cool golf, which is fun. Outstanding. When did you arrive? Yesterday? You already played? How's the courses? Like? Yeah, we played last night. So the idea of Bamboo is to tee off on all great courses. You tee off three hours before it's dark, so you finish in the at perfect light. So I, in fact, managed to tee off two and a half hours before it was dark and I got in just. Fantastic. And uh, what a wonderful spot it is. Well, good luck to you being down there. And uh, I wish it was me. Anyway, finally and most importantly, our guest today, Ran Morissette. As mentioned in the intro, Ran's one of the founders of the Golf Club Golf Club Atlas website. Many of our listeners will be familiar with that. But in reality, that's just a tiny part of Ran's involvement with golf and the study of the courses that it's played on. And we're looking forward to eking some of that knowledge out of him today. Rand, it's fantastic to have you aboard. Thanks for taking some time. Glad to be on board. You bet. Rand, I wanted to start with, I mentioned Golf Club Atlas is probably your best-known work, quote-unquote, for those of us not super familiar with you. Tell us a little bit about how it came about. That's a really interesting story in itself, isn't it? And a little bit like State of the Game, uh, this podcast in some ways. I imagine a lot of people must have looked at you and said, a website just about golf course architecture? Are you mad? Who'd be interested in that? Well, it, you know, it, it's incredibly fitting to be having the conversation with an Australian because it started in Australia with some friends of mine who started a company called Site Suite in 1996, and they 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 came to me on several occasions asking me if I had any information, you know, whether I took pictures, did anything that they could insert into their new software to show corporations that their web hosting platform did in fact work. And they kept coming to me, kept coming. I was like, no, sorry guys, I have nothing, nothing, nothing. And finally it turned when they said there's something called a discussion group. And at the time I was living in Sydney, I'd go down and play Royal Melbourne and I'd call my five best friends in the United States and I would end up with a $200 phone bill. <laughs> And it just, it was wrecking me. But when you play something monumental, like the stuff that you have in Victoria, it, you know, you just, you had to let people know. And these two very kind, patient men explained to me that I could, you know, post in a thread, all of which was new vocabulary to me, 
uh, you know, thoughts, comments, and it would be seen around the world. And all I could say to him was, you mean I'll save $200 a month? Um, so, you know, my brother and I, uh, John Morris at the time, who was with the USGA, we'd always liked to write course profiles. And, and in truth, we'd always like to take pictures on golf courses. And we started the, uh, the website, you know, with um, the course profiles. We did a feature interview with a man named Tom Doak, who was a lot more famous today than he was in 1999. And he was incredibly kind to do it with virtual unknown people at the time. And, and we, gained, uh, we gained traction uh, from there. We, we, um, it's been, been quite a ride. Yeah. So, so not only were these guys speaking Australian, Ram, which is difficult enough to understand, they were speaking internet, which must have been like a complete other language to you <laughs> at, at the time. Well, I can tell you, when Jeff called and said, we're going to do a podcast, you know, first thing I'm thinking is, my, my, my laptop doesn't have a camera on it. I don't even know what we're talking about still to this day. I mean, I'm truly in out when it comes to technology stuff. So uh, We'll get you on Twitter. Um, Clates has been a real success on Twitter, which we were all surprised at, those of us who know him, so we'll get you on Twitter. Twitter, I think, Rand. Oh, the Australian wit is tailor-made for Twitter. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. Have you been surprised by the success of Golf Club Atlas, Rand? It's it's been hugely successful. You know, it, the, the it, it's been very, very uh, rewarding. I mean, the, the subject of golf course architecture, it, like any art form, is something that many of us can become and are passionate about. And so it has been a platform for those people almost to come out of the closet, if you will, and talk about it. You know, growing up, uh, my mom gave to dad for Christmas in the late 70s, the World Atlas of Golf. And that is that served as the genesis for Golf Club Atlas, um, the name and homage to that uh, cornerstone book. But, you know, the, the, my two brothers and dad and I, we were, we were mesmerized by that book, and we couldn't get enough of it. Um, and yet, what did you do once you looked at it? You couldn't go talk to your neighbor. He could care less about golf architecture. And th- there really wasn't any place to take your enthusiasm. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, I think that remained true for a good 20 years after that, or at least 15 years after that, you know, sometime in the early 90s, you started having the Donna Ross Society and some other societies being uh, created, which brought like-minded um, people together. But the discussion of golf and certainly golf course architecture happens to be one of those subjects that's just tailor-made for the Internet. Yeah, it's, it's you have great courses. You have great courses in, you know, Japan, China, Australia, New Zealand, you know, Durban, up through Europe, you know, the UK. I mean, where the, as long as there's power and the Internet, you now could connect people with like interests around the world. Um, and that's what we've seen at uh, Golf Club Atlas. And certainly some of the discussions have become insanely heated. Um, you know, like with 
discussions <laughs> that don't. would happen at the... <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I, mean, I thought you were going to mention specifics. <laughs> don't open those cans of worms, Rand. We don't have time. No, I know. No, but just, you know, and these same discussions would happen at the, you know, Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Louvre or wherever. I mean, wherever there's art form, people yeah. can um, certainly become uh, passionate. And it's, you know, I think it's it's nothing but healthy to to talk about it. And and you mentioned at the start of the interview, you know, things like threads and posts and, you know, the whole internet vernacular was, was foreign. You know, I, I think what you find with a lot of people is they, they're not comfortable discussing golf course architecture. They don't really know what their eye is seeing. They, they don't have the vocabulary tied to, um, you know, trying to explain what they feel in their heart mm. and why playing a course like Piner's number two is more special than playing Tory Pines or whatever. Um, so, you know, and, and I, th- I think by having a you, know, a, you know, a platform, you can get people involved, you know, with you, you, they, they, they start their this learning curve. And once you get hooked on it, you know, to me, you're just, uh, you're done for life. It, it is it is somewhat educational, isn't it, Rand, which is a really interesting aspect of it. And one of the reasons, because I'm one of those people who exactly what you talk about, I'm really interested in the subject, but I'm not, don't know anything about it per se. So it's a, it's a matter of learning for me. Just on that point, both Clates and Shaq, I wanted to ask you about this, both who've got a really keen and deep interest in golf course architecture. Does that ring true to you, what Rand's saying there, Clates, about finding others to share that passion with prior to the internet? Is that ringing true with you, Clates? Yeah, I mean, no one spoke about it. You go to the golf club and no one, still not that many people are interested in it. They just play golf. They don't think about the game much. And so it's great. You know, there, there are a group of guys down here who kind of met through golf club out this year. There were probably 20 or 30 of us in, in Melbourne. And we get together and play golf every, you know, three or four times a year. And that's all we ever talk about. But if you play with someone who's not interested in it, their eyes just glaze over. Yeah. But, you know, it's the most interesting part of the game for me. You've said that a number of times, and we're going to explore that uh, shortly uh, today. Shaq, did you find the same thing? Would you agree with that? Being in America, yeah. a much bigger place, you'd think it'd be easier to find like-minded souls, but I wonder whether that's true. No, there was the only thing before Golf Club Atlas, there was uh, there was a, a chat room on AOL, which sounds so seedy now, but um, yeah, I know, and Brad Klein would uh, moderate it, and then there was also a discussion board and uh, I got into a great dust-up, uh, which I thankfully printed out somewhere uh, with Bob Cup. And uh, it, it was sort of one of the uh, things that status? bonded people like Brad Klein and myself, certain minimalists who saw it. Because uh, he, he had taken on uh, – somebody asked about getting in the profession. And he, uh, he came on there and said, don't bother. You know, there's too many uh, – talented people already and I, I i took issue with that and just thought he was kind of a stooge and uh but in those chat rooms butch Harmon was in those chats and there was a thursday night golf chat but it always go to architecture because brad was moderating and it was really strange but then golf club atlas kind of uh thankfully took that up many many notches yeah what a uh, what an amazing well what an amazing time. yeah that was Rand, about 1997 yeah Rand does One all of, of that oh, sorry you got well, I just one of the neat things too, following on, is you know, like Mike was saying, you'd go to your club, you would play golf, you'd have your beer, and you would go home. And for instance, when I lived in Australia, 
I was a member at Newcastle Golf Club up in Stockton. Um, I still love the place to death. But, you know, all, all you would do is that. And over time, the tea trees, everything would keep growing in, growing in, growing in. And, you know, at some point, the course became too narrow. And the cool thing about the Internet was that all these green chairmans, folks of influence within a club, could read what was going on in their city, in their region, in other parts of the world. And there's been this huge push back to width, long views, plain angles. And a place like the Internet helped make it easy for people to find all this information and consolidate it into a useful form. And I don't think that existed prior to the late 90s. Yeah, a lot of bad stuff happens on the web, but some good stuff happens too, don't you? And that's a prime oh, yeah. example of some good stuff. Rand, I must ask, it's on a tangent. Uh, why Australia? Why did you come here? And for God's sake, as a golf nut, why Sydney? <laughs> <laughs> well, I lived at Bondi Beach on the rocks where the ocean would hit my building. And there were some very interesting photo shoots below my window. And if you saw some of the sights on Bondi Beach, <laughs> I've seen some you would know sites. that it wasn't all that bad. Yes, fair cop. I'll put my hand um, that. It's only an hour's flight, isn't it? <laughs> that, that, is, uh, that is correct. I was, at the time, I was living in Hong Kong doing what I do now, which is equipment finance. And it turned out the type of finance that we did was more popular in Australia, and so you didn't have to ask a golf architecture nut whether he wanted to move from Asia to Hong Kong in, you know, like 93 or something. I mean, my hand shot up, and I was on the plane out of there. It was, uh, you know, great. And, of course, living in a foreign land as a golf nut, you experience the local golf culture differently, don't you? Most of the research, quote-unquote, that I've done today is I've had a read of the interview you did with Daniel Wexler on Golf Club Atlas back in 2005, and you talk about some of those things. Being immersed in the golf culture is very different to looking at just golf courses in Australia, isn't it? You talk in that interview about the difference in the way that we approach the game here, more like the UK than America. It's a totally different thing to live in a place than just to visit it and play golf, isn't it? Very much. I mean, there have been some, uh, you know, down moments here living in uh, America um, where, you know, home of the paved golf cart path and golf carts and the five-hour round and real estate developments and people who don't care for the game or put the game first. And... You know, in Australia, there was always a reverence for the game, and you got on with your business. I mean, at Stockton, you know, you would never mark a two-foot putt unless you were in somebody's line. You would immediately putt out, and, you you know, you were around in Stableford competition in three and a half hours, you know, on the slow side. And, it, you know, it's just how golf's supposed to be um, – Played. I mean, you all have a natural uh, affinity um, for it, and I mean, I, I, you know, I, I miss it. Uh, we haven't quite got that anymore, Clay. Tell me, we've probably gone more the America. We sent Fosters to America, and they've sent us some of their golf course. Haven't they? We've now got the cart path housing estate golf courses. We've gone much more yeah. that direction in Australia, haven't we, than we used to? Be. Well, we, well, we kind of have, but not to that extent. No, it's still a whole lot better, you know, than. Ran. I was just 
emailing with George Blunt this morning. He was talking about the difference between golf here and golf there. And, you know, it's, um, oh, dear God. Well, there's a character. Watch your wallet. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, isn't that he, a lovely way to be known? He did, uh, he, did, uh, he, he did ask me to mention the game he lost him at Royal Sydney in 1999. Anyway. Um, I'm surprised we got seven minutes into the radio show before uh, that was brought up. So you did well. I don't know anything about that. I might ask about that one off air. Clates, you were about to ask something, I think. No, no, I just, you know, I mean, George and I were talking about how much the game, you know, from what it was in Scotland to where it is now in America, it's, it's almost not even the same game, really. It just. It's a ball and a stick. Well, that's the impressive thing to me about golf in Australia. You you look at where you are on the map, and the game as it originated in Scotland, you know, is remarkably well and live where you are in in a true outpost of the world. Um, You know, where I am, my option to go get my proper golf fix is a six and a half hour flight from the Raleigh airport to London Heathrow and off I go across the English uh, countryside. But, you know, you would think just the, the sheer distance you are that you could have had a, a, a more watered down uh, version take hold. But when folks like Alistair McKenzie show up, good things happen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still, but it's still a fight to, you know, there are still people who want to, you know, I have golf carts on every course, and you know it's a fight to try and stop that Americanization of the game. Which, of course, is what Peter Thompson did. I mean, his his big argument about the small ball was not so much going to the, you know, the going to the big ball because it was a bad thing to play the big ball. It was just it was why are we following America? Why are we blindly following Americans? If you break it down, aren't all of those things, gents, really about the monetization of the game? You know, that's there's money in golf carts and housing yeah. estates. That's really what it's about. It's the it's the monetization of the game, or the commercialization of the game, perhaps. Some of Only it, some of it's just poor decades. taste. Poor taste, you reckon? Right. Just straight out poor taste. Well, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and on that topic, uh, I'm curious, Rand. You mentioned having to go overseas to get a certain kind of golf, but you live in what is considered a uh, a golf mecca. In Southern Pines, and um, yet I, I'm looking at a lot of the books that are coming out, Chris's book, and um, uh, just some of the old photos of the area. And, and while the restoration of Pinehurst is wonderful, and the Mid Pines restoration is just off the charts, great. Is it fair to say that that area uh, peaked a long time ago and has a long way to go to, to kind of come back to to its heyday, or is that a little strong? Absolutely. No, in, in Moore County, not a lot um, good has happened since Donald Ross died. Um, you know, one of the neatest courses um, built is not in, in Moore County. It's it's a few miles over the border in Lee County, Tobacco Road uh, Golf Club. But, you know, back, you know, Ross died in the late 40s, and not a lot good happened in golf architecture in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, when Pinehurst was being built out, when Pinehurst was going residential. Um, But, you know, the the fact that we have sandy soil here, that we're in the sand hills of North Carolina, that, you know, the fact how crucial sand is to good architecture was simply lost on the architects 
of that period. Or if it wasn't lost, they didn't take advantage of it. And for an area that has 50-ish golf courses, you know, we only have five or six that I would recommend playing. In fact, when I when I moved here yeah, in, in 99, 2000, and people would say, hey, I'm going to come visit you. I'm like, why? <laughs> uh, you know, at the time, Pinehurst number two had 28-yard wide fairways, wall-to-wall Bermuda grass. Uh, you know, dormy hadn't been created. Um, mid-pines, pine needles weren't, hadn't had the work done uh, to, to them. Um, you know, it's just a, nobody had even heard of Southern Pines Country Club, um, and it, it was just a, a different uh, place. Now, you know, the, the best that the Sandhills has to offer are, you know, we're putting on our best face once again uh, for the world. So it's a very, you know, exciting time to be here. What's been part of the cause for that? turnaround Rand. does it tie into that discussion we had about golf club atlas and that world that opened up and connected a bunch of disjointed people from around the world uh that's helped lead to this sort of step back because of course it's not golf's not a local game is it people in australia are equally interested in the great courses of america and the uk as they are in our own home gems and and educate themselves about those as well so you get people from outside pinehurst telling pinehurst you're doing the wrong thing don't you Right. You know, you, you needed for there to be a lay-of-the-land architect come in, and that is what Cor and Crenshaw uh, represent and then some of their uh, disciples. So they, they built the Dormy Club. They've restored Pinehurst to how it would have been in Ross's day. Then one of their disciples, Kyle France, did a superb job at Mid-Pines. That then puts pressure for good work to occur at Pine Needles as well as Southern Pines. And we all draft upwards. Um, You know, prior to that, you had, um, you know, the the name uh, architects, Nicholas, Palmer, Reese Jones. They were building the kind of courses that people wanted for home sites back in the 80s you know and 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 that it it, it was removed from what donald ross did donald ross understood that a one foot or two foot change in elevation could be a terror to a ace golfer you know versus a rock lined lake um and yet a rock line lake may well sell more homes to the uninitiated. Um, so you just had this, you know. But, but fortunately, um, the, the right uh, architects, people sympathetic to the land, people who get the best out of the land, you know, we've, we've turned uh, the corner. Mm. Tangent here, Clates, question for you. And I was just thinking about it when Rand was talking about it then, the sorts of golf courses that got built in the 80s. The most interesting statistic to me about golf course real estate has always been that only something like 30% of people who choose to live on a golf course estate, for want of a better term, actually play the game. And when you think about that, you can see the sort of damage that's been done to their game and why a lot of those modern housing estates with golf courses, the golf is awful because, in fact, it's not who it's designed for. 70% of the people they're selling to like the golf course but not golf. Yeah, and it's and it's why they're all in trouble in Australia. I mean, 
they're selling Torquay Sands Sanctuary Lakes in Melbourne's in trouble. You, you know, you, Settlers Run, of course, Norman did. So, so the, the developer, at least in Australia's case, seems to sell the houses and make his money and leaves, and the you know, the golf course is left left to rock because there aren't not, there aren't people to play it. So it seems like they're all struggling here. Yeah. So. I doubt we'll see too many more of them. Well, we could, we can. Well, I, I think you'll see. You know, if thousands of courses may disappear mm-hmm. with time, it's, it's, and I'm talking about the real estate offerings where you're zooming 80 yards from one green to the next tee between rows of condos and all that. I mean, it's just such a hollow shell offering of the game that it has no staying power and your true golfers are never going to live there. And the people who live there at some point in some decade are going to realize that this is just useless and there's a lot of upkeep. And, and I just think they'll all, they'll go uh, fallow and that will not be a bad day for the game. No, definitely. Are those fig- are those same sort of figures in in America, Rand? Do you know? Is that? And I only heard it quoted to me a couple of times here in Australia, so I don't know exactly how true it is. But that was the the figure that they worked on was about thirty percent of people who bought a house on a golf course actually played golf and had an interest in the game, which is quite staggering when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah, I, you know, and that you know that that's and there, there are other implications from that as well. I mean, first you have if you have a block of land and you're not dedicating the very best of it to, to golf, then right away, you know, building a great golf course is hard as can be. Mm. So you've got to give the architect every fighting chance possible to build a great golf course. And if he has to make a slew of allowances for roads and homes, well, you've already, you know, neutered what the product could become. Number two, you now have a bunch of non-golfers who have a financial interest in how the golf course is presented. And I can tell you, like in Pinehurst, where they pulled up the Bermuda Rough, the management at the resort did so um, with great uh, – when they would go out for dinner, they would be accosted by people saying, why are you pulling up such beautiful Bermuda turf? It looks so pretty. And now you're replacing it with weeds and sand. And yep. so, I mean, it, it was a, uh, a, a tough decision. Hasn't it been, Clates, one of the successes of Barnbooga where you're sitting right now, that it was built under the proper model, which is find the best land for the golf mm. and let everything fall around it. The temptation at Barnbooga would have been to put those beach shacks at the original course right up somewhere near where the clubhouse is, or in fact where the ninth hole is. Uh, the eight, ninth hole, not so much the eighth, but the ninth in particular. Put them up there because it would be spectacular views and you can work the golf course around it. That's exactly what they didn't do, isn't it? And Barnbooga's a wonderful lesson in doing it properly in that sense. Well, that was never the temptation because Richard was, in truth, was never going to do those until he'd finished the golf course. He never thought about accommodation on site, really. I was pulled across the curtains. Wow, it's a, you look out over the sand dunes and the ocean, it's an amazing place. But the ironic thing about Bamboogle was that Richard, if you asked him honestly at the start, he never really, you know, I think he would have said, as long as this place works and it doesn't lose me money, I'll be really happy. Mm-hmm. The crazy thing is that of all the golf courses that have been built in Australia, there are no carts. And this is the only one that really makes money because it's a great golf course. It, it, it's, it's remote. It's hard to get to, but it's a great course and it's a great experience. And all the you know the the, the clubs that are 15 minutes from the city but aren't any good with houses around are all going broke. Yeah. 
So, you know, it, it proves a lot of things at this point about everything we believe in, really. It does. Isn't that whole remote thing right. part of the, the joy of it, though? Ran isn't part of the success of Band and Dunes being the same thing, and I'm not sure about Cabot Links, how hard it is to get to, but for, for a dedicated golfer to have to make a journey, part of the hardship of getting there, that's one of the stories you tell when you get back, isn't it? Oh, mate, went all the way down to Barnburg, you know, it was hard to get there, but gee, it was worth it. It, you know, it doesn't hurt, but, you know, if it, I mean, the, the great thing is that the connection to nature is just so much more intense if there's not a cell tower or a smokestack or a whatever, um, you know, right beside you. Um, I, I've got lots of open land 10, 15 miles from my house on high, you know, bluffs, and, and you could have just, you know, it, and some of it's used for hunting, and these hunters wax on poetically about how great it is to be outdoors <laughs> there. stuff. And, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> this is America. you got to remember. Wow. Yeah. And the South. Um, but, you know, it, it, but, I mean, yes. I mean, if you can just, you know, you cocoon yourself into nature and you just find that you appreciate it all the better. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, I took that way off topic there. My apologies. Ran, you seem oh. to have this... Uh, <laughs> yes, I have no problem. Like it's never happened before. Ran, you seem to have this this fetish for moving to places that are golfing wastelands for some reason. You came to Sydney instead of Melbourne. You went to Pinehurst when it was at its worst. What's that about? But more importantly, the question being, in 99, you mentioned, of course, we had the US Open at Pinehurst. Payne Stewart won it. It was all very emotional. The golf course we're going to see in a few weeks' time, that same golf course, will be virtually unrecognisable. Can you talk to us a little bit about the changes there? You mentioned how the members were upset about the, the Bermuda being dug up. But from a golfing perspective, uh, what's going to be better? And what are you particularly looking forward to seeing at Pinehurst this time around that we didn't see in 99 and again in 2005? Well, I mean, I think for the first time in U.S. Open history, players will be playing for sides of fairways. Um, before, it's just, you know, can I hit the fairway? Now there's so many new angles that have been re-exposed, just as it was in the 20s, 30s, 40s, when Ross dominated uh, the landscape. So that that will be fascinating from a U.S. Open play. It'll also be fascinating to get the feedback from people who are used to tuning in to a Parkland course, Wingfoot, Medina, Olympia Fields, Baldusrol, you name it. That's what you typically think of as a U.S. Open uh, golf course. Here, other than one instance, if you're trying to drive the third green, there's literally no tree trouble on the entire uh, golf course. My my great regret with it coming here is simply that Ballesteros and Greg Norman never got a chance to vie for a U.S. Open trophy. I think with their short games and creativity, that that would have been their time to have uh, triumphed. And like him or not, Ran, it's sad that Tiger Woods won't be a part of it this year for that same reason. He's got a great golfing mind, hasn't he, as proved by a few British owners. It would have been wonderful to see him tackle this course in this this state rather than what we saw in 1995. I I just, I remember him tacking around Hoylake in 06 just like it was yesterday. I mean, it was probably my favorite tournament to watch since Nicholas in 86. I mean, it was just a masterful, flawless performance. Um, And and this is the kind of um, course 
that obviously would have been uh, well suited to accommodate a couple of you know high right drives. Um, <laughs> but 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 you know it, it, you know to me since he's come back the short game hasn't no. been as incredibly razor sharp as it was prior, and and so whether he would have been a favorite or whatnot, you know, I'm, I, I'm not sure. Um, but it, but it well, is he's... odd to me that a Phil Mickelson could be a favorite at a U.S. Open. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that, that's well, that bodes, speaks well of the USGA and, and the course they've selected. Well, and this year he really should like the golf course even more than, than he has in the past because he, he is somebody who's actually – paying more attention to architecture and, and the part of this whole movement we've been talking about where he, he's actually more aware of things and I'm sure he's logged on to Golf Club Atlas and, uh, and read up on some things. Rand, um, regarding number two, I was there in February and I, I love everything they've done. Uh, the one thing, though, that, that uh, troubled me, I guess in part because I just uh, – I've, I've – really come to love golf courses where you feel like the green design, the green complex is is merely an extension of the same contours that are in the fairways and uh, after in North Berwick last year and seeing some other places and some of the greens at, at number two just feel like they're too much. They, they just pop up out of a very flat landscape um, and I guess they're going to regress but they're not going to, to deflate some of those ones that, that Pete Dye says Donald Ross was determined to kind of take down. What, what, is your, what is your view and take on the green complexes on, on number two? I was just, I just did an interview with the website and they asked me, is Pinehurst, does it, did Dan Jenkins is at Pinehurst place like a Lynx course? And my answer is absolutely <laughs> not. No. Um, and, and, you know, it's for that very reason. You know, the, the strategy at Pinehurst is, with given the severity of the greens, that by and large, and there are a few exceptions, but by and large, you're going to hit for the middle of the greens and then putt out to the hole locations. And you won't have much more than a 20, 22-foot putt in most situations, um, given the all the, the side slopes. But I agree with you that the fronts of more of the greens could organically kind of rise out and be an extension from the fairway. I understand that they're going to, um, at some point, look at regressing the greens, and that might be, you know, to me, it's just take out a little bit of the air that's under the greens, just a little bit, and just in some select places, uh, for instance, Jeff, as you know, I like to bat it around with Hickory uh, golf clubs. And and obviously, Donna Ross grasped these greens once steel shafts had taken over. But nonetheless, there's something about Pinehurst number 2 that seems like it should be a better golf course for Hickory clubs than what yeah. it is. And right now, without a 60-degree Wedge. I mean, you want a just like Marion. Marion's a terrifying golf course for a Hickory player when you've got all the deep bunkers and you just have a nine iron to get out of the uh, bunkers. Pinehurst, with all their swales, you know, you're opening up your niblick, and uh, somehow you know the odds aren't in your favor. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, just on that, I was going to ask you, Rand, in that interview that I told you you did with, with Daniel Wexley, he asked you about, you know, what sorts of models of golf course would you take to build a modern championship test? You mentioned Merion. We saw the US Open there last year. What was your take on what happened there? I think I'm safe to say that none of the three of us thought it was particularly attractive or appealing golf to look at and some of the things that were done to Merion. What was your take on Merion last year? And just the difference between that and what we're going to see this year. Well, this year you'll see the driver um, stay in the bag um, a lot more. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I th- what, in what ways did you all not find um, Marion attractive? I mean, relative to the other Parkland courses that we mentioned, I think it's got this huge variety of, uh, you know, of golf holes. Um, oh, no, it, lo- it looked great. It- it was more of the setup. They, they they put so many holes on little spots. It was just such defensive golf. I think that, as I recall, was sort of the thing that we took issue and with. Does that the, sound about right? Yeah, and well, the, the bunkers in the rough uh, that, that Clates, yeah. you had the photos of oh, each yeah. year. I mean, there's bunkers 30 yards off. And what was the fairway that they moved over Second. towards the road so that it would Second. be? Second, yeah. Be? That was just, I thought that was a Yeah, that was horrendous, yeah. But anyway, that, that's kind of what I was doing. Was probably, I probably worded that clumsily, Rand. Yes, well, now, the, the I mean, setup, how know, it was presented it, it, for the tournament, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Marion with ribbon fairways is nowhere near as interesting um, to, to talk about as Marion with wide fairways. Mm-hmm. And what you've got with Pinehurst is wide um, fairways. How, how wide, Rand, just on a by the way? What sort of width are we talking? US, USGA 40 yards. 40 yards. They normally work 25 to 30 yards, the USGA, don't they? That's their... Right. I mean, so we're talking 50% mm. more than what they've seen. Now, CORE has tucked in some bunkers, you know, here and there, 7th hole, 12th hole, narrowing down holes at the exact right time, just as Donna Ross would have done if he had been alive during the 460cc driver um, days. Um, but, but, you know, the, the other thing, I mean, the, the relative to Marion, what I think will be fascinating is that when you get in the rough, you know, two, two competitors may hit the identical, you know, slight pull hook that scampers off into the rough, and one of them might be in a wire, gla- wire grass clump, and the other might be sitting perfectly on hard pan, and that is going to get inside of both of their heads. Mm. And and that's what to me the U.S. Open should test, you know, is the the mental fortitude and toughness of the players. And when you combine over 72 stroke holes, you combine the good breaks, the bad breaks, and then you start having all these fiddly shots around the greens. You know, I think players will be um, just fried by the end of the event, but that the sturdiest mind will win yeah isn't that funny because I, I keep hearing how oh it's so wide they're just gonna they're gonna have a field day out there I, the, the, it's funny how people seize on the width as a as such a, a negative and leaving the course so vulnerable it's really exciting what the ramifications yeah. could be for this rod you know some of the favorite architects espoused on um, golf club atlas other websites by jeff uh, you know, not a lot of their work has been seen in the U.S. Open um, or in major events. And, and obviously this is a Donald Ross course. But, I mean, it will be very interesting to see, 
you know, this Corin Crenshaw's ethos layered on top of a Ross course, how that will uh, stand up. And, you know, frankly, if 11 under wins, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Clates, you were about to say something there, and I wanted to get your thoughts on number two. I think you played number two on that trip you did to the States a couple of years ago, did you not? Yeah, we drove up on the Friday of the Bubba Watson, Louis Ustase and Masters and played it. I played with Matt Goggin. Um, I thought it was the hardest course I'd ever played. I mean, I, you know, I saw Bill a little after, Bill Cora a little after that, and he said, "You know, do you think we've made it too easy?" I said, "God, <laughs> you kidding? I hit about four greens. It was like I just thought it was brutally difficult. I mean, I mean, in part because it was so long. We played off the, I think the sixteenth hole is a five hundred and thirty-one yard par four. So, yeah, know, I just, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it. Yeah, you know, I think if you shoot eleven under, you win by eleven. <laughs> at least. How did Matt go? He's probably a, no disrespect to you, Clates. He's probably a better example of the modern oh, touring yeah. professional. Well, well, on sixteen, I hit a good drive, and I think I had a three wood and a fifty or sixty yard wedge, which is what I would do in a five hundred thirty hole. He hit a great drive and a great two on. I mean, he smashed his two on onto the green. Okay. So, so you know, that, that's. I mean, we played holes when we were kids that you know that were smash drives and smash two irons, and they were four hundred and sixty yards long or four seventy yards long. Now they're five hundred and thirty. It's really interesting what Mike says. I mean, this event, in a lot of ways, could be a fork in the road if the U.S. Open record is shattered, and let's say that it's just torrential rains for five days leading into the event, and da 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 da. And regardless of the sandy soil, they never get it to play properly firm and fast, and they blitz the record. You'll have a lot of people saying, see, I told you so, and and it could be a real blow to the kind of golf that we all love and cherish. So to me, there is a lot at stake in how this event plays out. Um, And a lot of, some of it's in the lap of the gods with the weather. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see a movement? Mike Davis has been an interesting. It's been an interesting rise of Mike Davis at the USGA. Do you think, Rand, that he has tried to bring more of this type of golf uh, into the public arena? I recall Tory Pines, two thousand eight, the moving of the tee on. I think it was the fourteenth hole. It's the most interesting hole all week. I think it was on the Sunday they moved the tee up, and you could watch players and caddies talking for long periods about what to do here. They were flummoxed by a short par four. Do you see a movement within the USGA? I mean, Mike Davis is probably the the figurehead of it, but do you see a movement within the USGA? And is this what you're suggesting? This is the, the big gamble that perhaps he's taking? Can we make this the sort of golf that we want to see on television? Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, all you have to do is look at the, the roster of coming places, Chambers Bay, Aaron Hills, you know, Shinnecock. Uh, you know, you, you, and, I, and I say that versus all of the prototypical Parkland courses that preceded them. So clearly, there is a change afoot, which is extremely uh, welcome um, from, from my end. And, you know, we all talk about the great thing about golf is that every course is different. And then you take your biggest event and you go play you know, a homogenous Parkland golf course year after year after year after year after year in the 60s, 70s. And that doesn't send the, um, that you know, that's not uh, golf's best image being put forward. Uh, and now you're going to see this whole variety 
of landscapes yeah. with a resulting variety of shots, weather, everything. And and I, I can't help but think that that's a great direction for the game to be going in. Yeah, yeah like, okay. Not to be American bashing shack, but the Open has the treatment, don't they? So this is not just an American phenomenon, this idea of homogenizing courses. You know, there's a treatment for a British Open course that exists as well. So. Yeah, they're... They have like they, theirs is different. They want to homogenize all the bunkers and have them be these little bathtubs and perfect and over manicured, and they have other issues too. But uh, that's really interesting what Rand said because you, you throw in Oakmont in 2016, they really won't play a Parkland traditional Parkland course in the U.S. Open uh, again until 2020. And as Rand said, this year the trees really won't be a factor, even though it's Pinehurst, and that's uh, that's going to be an amazing run. Of uh, of golf courses, the key to all that, I guess, Clates, and I can't remember if it was you that said it to me, but somebody once said to me, and the key about all this stuff is that ideally, what you want, it doesn't matter what scores people shoot or how hard or easy golf courses are, as long as the golf is interesting. And wider golf courses give you more interesting golf, don't they, Clates? The angles, it's more interesting golf to watch, isn't it? And perhaps that might be the great takeaway of these next few years, as as Rand's pointing out, that the golf we get to see, the scores may even be lower, we don't know that. But the golf should be more interesting to watch, shouldn't it? And perhaps that's the point people miss. Everyone talks in terms of hard and easy, don't they? But really what you want is interesting. Yeah. And you want varied. You want, yeah. You want, yeah. And, and you don't want to see people hacking out a long grass. You want to see interesting chipping and you want to see the ball run I mean you know I mean the worst golf I saw last year was the President's Cup where every iron just splattered into the green at Muirford Village and stopped dead yeah. and, you know it looked like it was great golf but anyone can hit a five iron to a foot when there's no wind and the green's soft well, not anyone Clates but I take well, your broader point <laughs> but you know it, it was much more interesting watching the World Cup at Royal Melbourne where to get the ball within a foot of the hole you had to land it 50 feet away and Judge the, the trajectory and the shape and the, and, the, and the speed of the green, and you know it's almost impossible to hit the ball to a foot from the hole at Royal Melbourne. But here we were watching this hit and splat stuff. It's just horrible. So the great thing about Pine is, as long as it doesn't rain, is that you'll see the ball run and mm-hmm. move on the ground. Players but we've we've things, we've yeah. we've already made huge progress. So wouldn't you say, Rand, in the last ten years, where people are now already they've already turned on that kind of golf for the most part. I mean, every once in a while you run into somebody who says, oh, I like it when they it beats them up and they hit down little tiny uh, bowling alley fairways with high rough. But but I, I really encounter that much less often. I don't know about you, but I, that's my sense, is that we've already at least made some progress. Uh, I agree. Uh, and I don't know if it's the, the recession maybe even... <laughs> Helps. I mean, what's, yeah. one of the things you had in this country is you were throwing too much money at golf, and then you were making it too hard, and then the recession hits, and, you know, life's just hard for people. And the last thing they want from their escape sport is for it just to be bashed over the yeah. head. And then yeah. along comes Mike Kaiser, and you get the, these wonderful offerings of of courses that people are addicted to and go back year after year on annual pilgrimage and and for sure um that they've turned i mean it was always ironic to me that 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 you know these green chairmen in the 70s and 80s would go to scotland fly across the pond back home rave about the trip and then start planting more trees (laughs) 
is like they had a lobotomy somewhere over the mid-Atlantic, <laughs> and they forgot what made it so neat where they were. Um, and 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 that, that's much less prevalent. There's a cultural element to that, is there not, Ren? I've grown, I grew up in Sydney, and that's where I first experienced golf and sort of in, loved the game and played the game. And in '97, I went with um, Clates and my sort of boss, Brendan James, the editor of Golf Australia magazine, good mate of mine. We went on a big pilgrimage to the Open, and I was flummoxed at first. At first, I thought this can't be golf. You know. Golf doesn't look like this, you know. We first place went was Royal St George's. Like golf doesn't look like this. This is what is everybody raving about? By the end of a thirty day trip, you're like, wow, why doesn't all golf look like this? There's a learning process to take place if that's not being your introduction to the game, is there not? Well, the best thing that happens for from us, and again, you can technology is a wonderful thing. Getting these live events from Australia with your sandy, burnt out fairways, yellow, tawny color fairways. And, you know, the same, we used to only see those for the Open uh, Championship, and certainly that's what you'll be seeing from Pinehurst, Chambers Bay, Aaron Hills. You're going to see this far greater range of textures, colors, um, which is clearly what you find in nature when man is smart enough to leave nature alone. Um, and so that you know, that's it's, it, it, you know, seeing seeing the these hard-running fairways, as Mike says, broadcast into your den, you know, that's just good for the game, good for the direction. Ran, I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned that uh, you play predominantly hickory golf now, or in fact only, only play with hickory, and there's a bit of a movement in that way. There's people who love the, the 80s and 90s gear and those who like stuff from further back. I think, Clates, you play in a day each year, don't you? It's called the Seve Day, where everybody plays sort of pre-1990 yeah, equipment do. uh, down in Victoria. One of the things that you said in that interview which really intrigued me, and you're right, and I probably directed at people like me and to a certain extent Shaq and uh, oh, maybe not so much Clates, there's a lot of us do a lot of whining about modern equipment and how it's affected the game, um, but we all have the choice, don't we, to experience golf however we want to. And in some ways, this bleeds into this notion of playing from the right tees as well, or the correct tees for your level of golf. There's a there's something about golfers who can say, look, there's something very wrong about all this modern equipment, and yet we continue to use it. There's something silly about you know the length of golf courses, yet we all walk to the back tee. What goes on there? Do you think? What's that about? What are, what's wrong with us? But that's such a great um, point. I mean, I think what we have now, more so than any point in history, are options. But it doesn't mean that you have to um, avail yourself of those options. My frequent playing partner here, Chris Bowie, has just written this book, Early Days of Pinehurst. He plays with 1956 Tommy Armour blades. And you either hit it really well and a three-iron can go about 185, 190, and Chris kills the ball, or, you know, you know it when you hit it. And, you know, I play hickories probably three out of every ten rounds, and the nice thing with hickories is you just become detached from your score. So many people, especially Americans, are so wrapped up in what they shoot, and that totally misses the first 10 points of the game. And once you detach yourself from the outcome and you're just out there having fun, looking at the filtered light in the afternoon, doing, you know, looking at the deer, whatever, you know, you're miles ahead of where you were before you went and played your eight 
or 12 golf holes. And so, you know, personally, if my father has some, you know, he's 77, just turned 77, if he has some wicked driver that will allow him to hit the ball 220 yards and it keeps his enthusiasm uh, in the game, I'm pleased as punch for him to, you know, have that option available. But it doesn't yeah, mean you I, I have really to use it. I don't really care about tournament yeah. golf. But you don't have to use that same driver to hit at 270 yards. You can choose something that'll allow you to, which is, which is an interesting point. Clay, it's almost like listening to you there. You talk about this score issue all the time, and people's obsession with the score and how it misses oh. the point of golf. Just tease that out a bit for me, because I love, I love the notion of what you say. I can't help but be obsessed with the score myself. Probably why I don't play as much as I used to. It kind of ruins the game, doesn't it? But we insist on doing it. And of course, when my dad used to, go, when I knew nothing about golf, when my dad came home from golf, my first question was, "What did you score?" Mm. You know, so that's what you think golf is. But I mean, the more I played, the more, the more I realised how. I mean, you're a pro, so I was a pro, so the score was relevant. But just playing golf is the whole point of it. Is as Rand said, is just walking around, hitting shots, and being with your friends or even by yourself, and and just thinking about the holes and the course and how it works. And and, and you know, this will sound silly, but until you shoot 72, what does it matter what you score? You know, people who shoot par, okay, go and score. But if you're shooting 95 or 100 or 90, what? who cares? I mean, just that, that's so not the point of the game, I don't think. But but in, in Australia, we're even more obsessed with scoring than anywhere else in the world. I mean, every time people go to the golf club, they're in a competition. Yeah. So people always score. So for me, the worst thing about that is, and then women are worse at it than men because they never do it, or rarely. They never go out and learn how to play. They never go on the golf course on their own with three or four balls and learn how to play. Every game of golf they play is with a scorecard in their pocket and with one ball. And every shot counts. In a competition. So how can you learn how to play? You can't learn how to play golf like that. You can't learn on the range, really. You can learn to swing, but you can't learn how to play. So, of course, you go and build a deep bunker, and they, all, all they do is complain about it. They would never think to go out at 4.30 at night when everyone's gone and throw 10 balls in the bunker and learn how to play the shot. Learn how to get out of it. It's an yeah. interesting take. What's your relationship with the scorecard and golf, Shaq? What's that been like over the years? Oh, it's dreadful. and it's, it's, I mean, I used to play competitively, so I was obsessed with that. And it's, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's very hard to find a game of people that uh, want to just go out and and bat it around and maybe have a, a light match. Uh, it's it's a very American thing, especially the grinding out the uh, the scores. And it's I, I blame some of it too on the cost of golf. There's something about when people spend a lot of money, they they want to make sure they get their money's worth. And the way they do that is to to actually post the score. And then of course the handicap system is uh, never a, a, a big help either. Do we need a new? Well, Rod, I'll, I'll share this story about. Um, Jeff, I mean, one of, you know, I, through Founding Golf Club Atlas, I have continued to continued my education, and this, this subject matter was crystallized in a conversation that I had with Jeff on a visit to Los Angeles. Jeff, we went and saw Rustic in the Dirt, and then you showed me this 18-hole course that was destined to go bankruptcy, ah, into bankruptcy. Yes. But Jeff was saying you know, that when people come up to him and say, you know, what would you do with your, you know, all your fancy clubs, what would you shoot? And they're like, God, I was great, I was great. And Jeff's like, well, would you shoot 61, 62, what would you shoot? And they're like, no, I had a 77. And Jeff would be like, oh, never mind. 
you know, it's so true. I mean, a lot of ways you feel like you're cheating with some of these clubs. There's this ad now with Kenny Perry where, you know, he's 50-something years old, and he says he hits his six iron 200 yards now. You know, if you want to, if you avail yourself of the opportunity to use those clubs, you best be shooting in the 60s or shut yeah. your mouth because nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating mentality with the uh, technology and, and how people view it as the course's job to defend yeah. itself against their equipment, even though they're really not playing very well. I mean, that, the, the story he's talking about was Rustic Canyon. I'd get that all the time. They'd, they'd say, oh, it's, it's really fun. And it was at a time when people would say that in a sort of demeaning way. <laughs> now people say, way. "Yeah, yeah." Now they don't, and I think that's one of the neat things that's been a change. Is somebody who go to Mid Pines and say it's really fun, and they mean it. They don't mean it as a put down yeah. that oh, it's it's a nice little course, um, <laughs> but it doesn't. You know, it couldn't host the U.S. Open it's tomorrow. Um, sort of thing, right? Whatever that well, means, I right? So. That to me is well, exciting yeah. that we've had that change, but I love. I still don't get. We still have that mentality, and especially from good players, that the course's job is to, to uh, somehow change for uh, for their equipment. It, you know, I'm on the uh, panel for Golf Magazine that picks the World Top 100, and it was so neat to see North Berwick has made it in, Cruden Bay has made it in. Yeah. I don't know if St. Inundoc has made it in, but if you go to the UK. Those courses aren't considered in the top, you know, 30 or so in the U.K. So, you know, and they, they, they dismiss those courses as being yeah. fun and sporty. Yeah. And, and now, now Cruden Bay takes itself so seriously, having achieved some, some fame through the, you know, that, that ranking, that they've narrowed in the fairways uh. and grown the rough really tall. And now it's not fun anymore. Yeah. Dear idea. It's not fun or sporty. Yeah. Uh, I just got to say, Rand, Clates and I tried to get a campaign going. I think it was late last year about you couldn't become a, a PGA member unless you proved you could hit a long iron. And Clates, Clates made the great point in a piece this week about Adam Scott on the Golf Australia website, Clates. I really enjoyed. Nobody ever says, you know, this guy's great. He's great with a hybrid. People used to say, you know, Norman's amazing with a long iron or Seve really yeah. hits those. Nobody ever says, you know, he's great with a hybrid. And it really talks to that technology thing, doesn't it, and, and what it's done. Clates, I think you had a question for Rand about Woking. Why are you sending me messages about Woking? No, no, no. I just, you know, Woking was relevant to the, the other course, well, Parkland course. I know Rand's been there and likes it. But, you know, that's such a cool little course, 6,500 or 600 yards and no rough and – well, Heath, but no rough and just a great old course that's – you know, if you went there – if a pro went there, he'd shoot 65 every day, but one of the greatest. One neat thing about that, there was so much, obviously, Bernard Darwin, but there was so much great writing going on um, emanating from the U.K. when places like Woking were held in reverence. And so for yeah. anybody interested in golf architecture, you know, you have gobs and gobs of material available where, you know, absolute ace uh, writers, um, you know, detailed um, some of these courses that have dropped out of, you know, the, 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 you know, the glare of the spotlight, but are, are, you know, in some ways more important today than ever is the way forward. 
Ran, I'm, while um, I'm sitting and listening, sorry, Shaq, I just wanted to, to ask you about this. You, you mentioned in that you opened with a bit of a biography and how you sort of got into golf. And for you and your brothers, it was to go down to the local course with your dad and the dog of an evening mm. and play nine holes. Ultimately, is it, we can talk about Pinehurst and Hoylake and, you know, open venues and major championship golf and all the rest of it, but in its essence, isn't that what we've lost about golf is I can't think of a golf course near me where I could go with my dog and a couple of 10-year-old kids of an evening and just play. Golf has somehow lost that, have we not, completely? 100% agree. I mean, you know, my favorite courses are in England. England's my favorite country. Uh, for golf because the dog is a welcome companion. In Australia, I think you might be worried that he ends up with a rattler or something. But, um, you know, I, it, it, it's we, we grew up playing nine holes after um, work, and there was no pressure, and it was an option to to whether to, to go or not. And it was just a great family uh, time. And, and somehow that's totally gone missing and and we all know that golf is struggling now i just don't think we appreciate the degree to which it's struggling because i don't think that there's that wave i'm not, I'm not talking about i'm 51 i'm not talking about the generation behind me i'm talking about the generation behind them you know the pga tour does nothing for me i i I watched my first PGA Tour round with my dad on Father's Day at Harbortown, which is, comes after the Masters. So that's in April. You know, my my children don't even have the option of watching it. I, I mean, I'm not I'm not watching it. It's it's not an attractive product the way that it's being packaged these days. And and so where you know where is that generation going to come from? Where people you know, care for the game. They learn it through the traditions of the game slowly over time. And their, you know, affection for it builds um, accordingly. Through writing rather than watching Rand is an important way to experience the game. You talked about great writers. The importance of that cannot be overstated. Shaq, you had a question there, which I well, really you, yeah. my apologies. It's all right. When you were talking about great writers, Rand, I was, uh, and, and then all a confluence of topics, so North Barrick, Last year, a lot of people were almost alarmed over there at how much everybody who went there loved it. And and I'm fascinated by the UK, and I'm wondering if you think it's the writing. But they one, they haven't really produced a great architect since, uh, if you unless you count McKenzie as Scottish, which is probably not accurate. But uh, uh, since Old Tom, uh, a truly great designer, and and that seemed to to have a sense of how things should be done, but. What? Why? And now they they take their bunkers and they they build these these they're rebuilding them every you know three weeks and they've got them so manicured. But why? Where is that? Um, why? Why do you think that that things have evolved that way in the UK where they they kind of have an odd? They're going in an odd direction with their sense of what architecture should do, and they tend to have a kind of strange reaction to links golf sometimes. A lot of them don't like it. They'd rather yeah, play our golf. Like St. Andrews used to have five or six different forms of bunkers. Some were revetted, some were crumbling faces, some were deep, some weren't. Um, and they've homogenized them all. 
my understanding in part is so that they can get the course back into play quickly. I mean, you have, what yeah. do they have, 300-plus bunkers? Um, so there's a maintenance issue. But in the process of doing that, you are pressing and starching out the character of yeah. the landscape. And, you know, I, in a lot of ways, hosting a big event or having a crush of people come and play you, there are very yeah. few instances where that ultimately proves to be good for the course. Yeah. Clay, it's a touch of that we've probably had in Australia, and you've talked about it before, isn't it? And, and Shaq's talking about that, the local attitude in the UK and Scotland about everything American. We went through a period of everything American was good, wasn't it? You've talked about this with players, you know, that all of our courses are rubbish, that, you know, only the only good courses are American. The only good players are American. They do all these amazing – there was a real period of that, wasn't there, in the 60s, 70s, maybe a little bit into the 80s? Yeah, it was just – you know, the, the – it was crazy. I mean, it was, the, the the American players who came down here were gods. I mean, it was like, I mean, how can you possibly beat these guys? They're the greatest players in the world, and they must have three legs and four arms, and you know, they be grand. But I, I mean, the greatest manifestation of that was what happened at the Australian. Really, I mean, Rand saw that. I mean, there was a quintessentially, you know, an Australian golf course slash Scottish golf course, really, in the sand dunes in Sydney, and it, you know, in the late '70s when. Everyone revered everything American, and Nicholas was the greatest thing in the world. And you know, they made a course that was indistinguishable from anything in Florida. It was a staggering piece of cultural cringe, really. You know, so, but what was interesting in England when, when I was playing there in the eighties and nineties was that all those new courses were just facsimiles of, of American courses. I mean, they just built a whole stream of American golf courses by largely by American architects, I guess, but. You know, there was no one sort of saying, why are we, you know, where's the next Woking? Where's the next Sangdale? Which is not a criticism of America either, by the way. It's no, more a criticism of those who've said, well, you know, if it's American, it, it must be good. Well, I suppose that's part of a broader history. It's got not just golf, a lot of things like that, isn't there? I mean, we saw Japan in the 80s and 90s. Everything American was good, people yeah. dressing like Elvis and those sorts of things, which probably explains some of that, I think, Shaq, um, what you're talking about. Because yeah. It, and it touches some on that cultural good. thing too, doesn't it, Ren, that we talked about? Different cultures, where you grow up is really affects how you see everything, golf included, doesn't it? It, it, it does. I mean, some of what we're talking about is the damage that television does because I think the U.S. more telecasts emanate from the U.S. They emanate from money-driven courses, real estate courses, TPC courses, and, and that's what the world sees as being uh, golf. They don't see Yeamans Hall or... San Francisco Golf Club, the quiet, discreet places. And so the worst of American golf is what's being broadcast and then followed up on by these unsuspecting uh, countries. And it's a vicious uh, down cycle. And it's, it's how you get uh, a 43-year-old like Lee Westwood from England who can say about St. Andrews, someone said, what do you think about St. Andrews? He said, not in my two, top 200. They said, in Scotland. And he said, in Fife. That was right. his take on St Andrews, which is staggering to think that somebody from the UK could have that view. But that, I suspect, is a result of a couple of generations of that kind of thinking where, you know, and of course, most of the UK's good golfers shack end up going and playing in the US because that's where the money is as well. So those who follow the game and yeah. follow professionally, what they see is you know, if you want to watch Luke Donald, you watch him in America every week. That's... That's pretty much how it well, works. You know, that's, that's the rub. I mean, you know, a talk show like yours, you get to hear the name Woking, North Berwick, et cetera. 
but that doesn't, you know, you'll never see a picture of Woking on the cover of Golf Digest. I mean, it doesn't sell magazines. The Golf Channel, which is starved for content, is never going to do a piece on, uh, you know, clubs like that. And so, you know, where are people to, you know, where will they gain their exposure to these neat havens of golf? I mean, yeah, there are X hundred of them around uh, the world because if they do gain exposure, they'll be hooked for life. Isn't this part of a broader problem, though, uh, Rand, with golf in particular, is that I think Huggy said it once on an early episode, the game's been hijacked by money, and that's the truth in as much as, you know, I'd love that if we could get state of the game, go on the road and do a, a tour of the UK of the great golf courses that people haven't necessarily heard about or haven't heard much about. But where does the money come from from that? And isn't that the problem? The coverage of golf courses is of the golf courses who've got the money to pay the advertising to cover the printing and the journos and the photographers and everything that goes with publishing a magazine. So that is naturally where they must gravitate to. Otherwise, you don't have a magazine at all. I think that's more broadly the issue. The reason that you don't get frank discussion about equipment in golf magazines is because you only have to look at them to see who's paying for the magazines and it's equipment companies that's where the bulk of the money comes from and so that's kind of what's happening i don't know what the answer is this show and golf club atlas and a few other little corners of the internet do things but in a mainstream way unless somebody's paying for it you just can't do it can you and the people who are paying for it are the people who are the problem in many ways that's the problem and and that's why it's so important that a place like pinehurst which you know can pay for exposure, which does ads and all the magazines, et cetera, that they are putting on you know the best that golf has to offer, and you know that wasn't true the last time they held the open. Uh, it is true now, and so I think it's an exciting time. Yeah. What do you reckon, guys? We take state of the game on the uh, road. Who are we going to find to back? Yeah, <laughs> that'd be a good trip. Uh, <laughs> it would be. I, I will say, in defense of our of our magazines, uh, the one thing that. I did a piece last year trying to get people to take a, a different trip, just an East Lothian trip, and experience a, a lot of different kinds of golf courses. And they're all right there to me. If you include Muirfield, uh, Gullen, you play uh, play uh, North Berwick, and, and uh, I mean, there's Musselboro, and there's all sorts of cool stuff. And uh, and yet, you talk to people, they, they want – they. St- I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've tried to beg to not go to Glen Eagles. And I just say, when you're there, why? Why would you go there? There are all these great little links, Crail. You can go to these fun places. and But it's a name brand place. And they, they feel like, well, if I'm going to make that journey, and I have to check off the big names. And that just seems to be still an instinctual uh, desire of people and 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 uh, and no clates they don't want to play the Queens course they want to play the crappy Jack Nicholas Ryder Cup course which is well, the, the most Queens horrifying course. of all. The Queens course is fantastic. I'm, yes, but still, come on over there. Where, where oh, yeah, would really on our? Let's say how we go on our state of the game uh, trip. Would would that be in our top fifty? Uh, oh, you guys are yeah. setting the agenda. I'm sitting out. You, you, uh, you well, pick where we're going. Well, the Kings course might be. The Kings course was great fun. I thought. Oh, yeah. I would would go to Rand's match play and start uh, match playing that against some of the other options. Might just be uh, the two of us playing the Kings Court. London Links or... Shaq's Shaq's boycotting Glen Eagles, only you and I. I'd play King Arook, the uh, Hickory course we played. We'd have way more fun there than the the Kings course at Glen Eagles. But but. it's interesting... You know, Jeff... 
Sorry, my, my question is, why doesn't Golf Digest, I think what I said was put it on the cover. Mm. You know, I don't care yeah, about yeah. getting 300-yard drives. You know, all these covers are, are noisy. They're loud. You know, yeah. they'll never put a, uh, you know, a course like that. Your article, you know, why couldn't that, you have one of your pictures is the lead. And, you know, it just, it won't happen. New York is a very uh, newsstand driven city they're very into new to covers of magazines even though the rest of the world really doesn't have newsstands anymore but that's still very much a a new york thing that they obsess about covers i'm always sort of fascinated by the interest in the cover and and uh and, and when we had this paulina gretzky thing recently i just so i you know i really don't spend a lot of time looking at the cover i'm, I'm into the what's the inside thing, the magazine but okay. that's a new york thing. A, a magazine is a commercial entity and and this is part of the problem and people will tell you i don't like this new magazine and i don't like that and you hear that feedback all the time when you work for a magazine when you look at the sales figures and i distinctly recall this in the late 90s when i was with golf australia magazine it was clear when you put greg norman on the cover the sales of the magazine when they came back you know three weeks later were vastly greater than if yeah. you put kari mm-hmm. webb on the cover now, there's a moral argument about, you know, who should be on the cover and should women's golf get more coverage, et cetera. But when you run a business and the business model yeah. says to you, you you make more money when you put Greg Norman on the Well, what do you do? You put Greg Norman on the cover. As Clates has always said, in a two-horse race, back self-interest because it will yeah, always yeah. win. And that's kind of what happens. You can put Woking on the cover and, and feel wonderful about yourself that you're doing a service to the game, but... If it doesn't make any money, <laughs> you're trapped in this yeah. problem of is it going to be your last issue? You but with that, I mean, are, I don't know what uh, magazine sales are off newsstands, but I mean, I, I assume that they're flat or down. Why wouldn't you mix it up? I take your point, Rand. I think everybody agrees, but I think the commercial reality, that's what the commercial realities are. And it seems to me, when I first started in this business years ago on a daily newspaper, the commercial side of newspapers and magazines were never spoken about. I mean, journos never thought about whether newspapers were profitable or magazines were profitable or not. That was somebody else's job. The modern culture now, it's very much your part of those whole discussions as a journal. The media itself has changed with this whole internet thing. So so those lines have become blurred. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to tell you who the advertising manager was at the old Daily Mirror in the late 80s, early 90s, and I guarantee you I could tell you who the advertising manager is at Golf Australia magazine um, because those roles have changed. Yeah, that's a much broader. So there's a whole show in that, Shaq. We'll do a, yeah. we'll do a media show. Well, dude, interestingly, the biggest selling magazine, I'll bet, over the two years, certainly for Golf Australia, is the one that ranks the courses. I bet that sells better than any of them. I, yeah. I'm not sure. You're probably right, Clates. And, of course, that's a whole discussion as to whether that's a healthy yeah. thing too, isn't it? I mean, I, I oh. personally, and I've said it to BJ a number of times, I, I've got no interest in the rankings. But, again, it doesn't matter what I think. If more people buy that issue, then you have to put yeah. it out, don't you? I mean, that's kind of your job. The charter is to, is to sell mags. Rand, we've covered a bunch of stuff I didn't expect to and missed out on a bunch of stuff I wanted to. I wanted to hear Shaq talking to you about Pinehurst more, and we touched a bit on that, but not enough. But sadly, we've been on the phone for hours and could do for hours more, but we must stop because people hopefully are going to listen to this and hopefully some of them get to the end. But it's been fabulous to have you aboard. I can't thank you enough. Will you come back one day? You bet. You guys take care, okay? Really enjoyed it. We will indeed. We Thanks, Rand. As Thanks, well. mate. Thank you very much. Clates, a big thank you to you as well. Enjoy Barnburgle Jeans. Much as I'm saying that sort of through clenched teeth because I'd like to be there, but I do well, hope a, you enjoy the next couple of It's a perfect days. day, no wind. It's unbelievable. It looks fantastic. I'm just, I'm, I'm out there. I'm ready. Now you're just being smug and rubbing yeah, it in, yeah. and I don't like that. Go have a Han premium for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. After the round. Or a VB. All of us. 
after the round, Clates. In fact, you should have yourself a Foster's just as punishment, Clates. Uh, Shaq, been great to have you aboard yeah. as well. Always, uh, you know, always I think the fun. Sattlers will uh, bring out some nice wine. It sounds like for this event. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. haven't they got like a wine cellar that wine yeah. buffs? They're doing, a, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not a wine drinker, but yeah, as I understand it, their wine cellar is pretty impressive. If you're into that, yeah, sort of thing. yeah, I wouldn't uh, worry about Clates. He'll be fine. We'll put Bamboo no, no. on the schedule for a for a State of the Game episode. There too. you go. Shaq, you'll have to come down here. That is it for this <laughs> episode of State of the Game. It's almost running to the next one, which is probably a week or two away. Great to have your company. Hope you've enjoyed it. Looking forward to it again next time on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.